A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, a hidden or hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And when you hear in the ear, preach it on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from the Father's will? But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, that you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, who confesses, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do you think, do not think that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. And he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross And follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet receives a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of water in the name of a disciple. And more properly, that might be because he is a disciple. Assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. It's been an interesting week for me. Part of it was just really, really uplifting. In fact, I I went to we some of us here went to a uh, conference called the Great Commission Conference, and to my joy, it was not a conference of call to go out and do evangelism. It was a conference calling us to go out and do discipleship. I wish I was sitting there. I'd already prepared my sermon, sipped it out to the elders before that conference. But I had been studying hard about true discipleship. And we're going to look at this today. But I wish I could have taken two of those different preachers and brought them in here this morning and set them up and let you listen for the next two hours to these guys. Since I can't do that, I just want you to know that what they preached confirmed to me that what I'm preaching today is for me and you. Jesus says a disciple is not above his master, 
If they call him Beelzebub, the dung god, the ruler of demons, that's what they'll call you. He's not visibly here to persecute you, but you are. What are they going to call you? When Saul of Tarsus was blinded in the light of Christ on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he asked him, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's important to know that in order to be a disciple, the person the world hates most is Jesus Christ. And you are an ambassador will be hated by all. What a fun ministry. It should come as no surprise to you. He says to them, do not fear them, though. What I tell you in the dark, meaning what I tell you in secret, you go out and shout it from the housetops. I don't see a lot of people standing on their housetops lately. I don't either. It's too tight. I'm acrophobia. What? No, that's not what that is. What is it? When you're fear heights? I'm, f- I'm afraid of heights. Okay. <laughs> Just leave it at that. <laughs> when we gather together as a church, we should really be learning from Him. Our church services are designed to not only build up, but to equip you for the work of the ministry. If you're coming to church and numbly listening to a sermon... You're not accomplishing what God wants for you. You're supposed to take what you learn in your quiet times and from the pulpit and from your Sunday school and your home teams and then go out and preach it. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Because there's a lost world out there and we're supposed to go to them without fear. Now, fear falls into different areas. Especially the fear of sharing the gospel. Verse 28 says, he says, don't fear those who can only kill the body. Get it? Only kill the body. But cannot kill the soul. Let your fear be of God. You know, if I have to say in American Christianity today, the one thing that I find more than anything is is a lack of the fear of God. We talk love, love, love all the time. We talk about God, and He is love. But He's awesome. (laughs) He is awesome and to be feared. And He's saying He can actually not only kill your body, He can take your soul and throw it into hell. So be more afraid of Him than you are those folks out there who want to oppose you for the gospel. And then he makes, in doing God's will, he says, we're really important to him. We're really important to him. He makes a comparison of you and two sparrows. Sparrows are sold for a copper coin, like a penny. Two sparrows for one penny. Are you not worth more than them to him? I think so. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered, he says. Conclusion, you're worth more than sparrows. To God, so stop being afraid of men. That's the call, part of it. Then he makes a parenthetic statement in verses 32 and 33. He says, during persecution, there is a standard that you should follow. 
Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. And during persecution of any kind, and you're being mocked as a Christian, he also says, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Sometimes we're embarrassed to be called Christian in some some settings. Sometimes we just want to slink away quietly or not speak up. Can you imagine anything worse than having Jesus deny you before his Father? I can't. I can't think of anything worse. You see, part of the evidence of being a real Christian is boldness. Sometimes boldness is to the point where you offend people. Somebody said one time, I think it was uh, Steve Brown in, down in Florida, said Christians should be locked in a room, new Christians should be locked in a room and fed under the door until they learn how to not offend people. <laughs> and I went out and offended every member of my family after I got saved and couldn't understand. I thought these people would just be so eager to hear this good news. But then also I thought Christians would be eager to hear how they can be free, and I found that's not true either. Unfortunately, the dividing line is Jesus. He is the dividing line. He did not come to call peace. When he came and drew a line in the sand, everything on the side of the other side of that line is going to be chaos. He isn't referring to the peace, by the way. He mentioned in Romans 5, 1 at Rod Med, the peace of God or peace with God that comes as a result of trusting Christ. He's talking about peace between family members. Peace, peace between church members. Peace between other kinds of people. And he divides us, true Christians, from the world. Mentioning his name in a way other than a cuss word sets up opposition immediately. Those who love him and believe in him are encouraged and emboldened. Those who either do not know him or dislike the very thought of him get antagonistic toward you and why Jesus said it in John 5:19 We know that we are of God and the whole world 1 John 5:19 excuse me we know that we are of the God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one The Greek there is really interesting It describes the world as sitting in Satan's lap as a plaything That's exactly what it is they're completely under his authority. And they don't even know they're under his authority. But he exercises that authority in an awful, awful way. We're told the whole world lies under his sway. That includes anyone outside of the church or anybody acting foolishly inside the church. The problem is this. This includes members of our own household. I'm not talking about the church now. I'm talking about our own homes. He describes in 35 that how members of your own household become your enemies. He concludes that if your love for them is more than your love for him, you're not worthy of him. Meaning, in another passage, your love for him in light of your Lack of love comparatively to your loved ones might look like hate to them. Now, I know none of you here who have lost relatives hate them. 
I'm, I know you do. I mean, remember, there are people sitting here today on your right and left. Just look at each other on your right and left. Just turn and look at each other. Okay? These people are going to spend eternity with you. Ooh. <laughs> They're going to spend eternity with you. And if they're true believers, if you're going to spend eternity with them there, you're not going to argue one bit with them for about anything in heaven. So try to get along now, okay? Your family members members may, on the other hand, may not be in heaven with you someday. I have family members that will not be with me in heaven. Some of the reasons I know that for sure because they died without Christ. And some of them are really antagonistic to Christ. And you know what? When I get to heaven, you're going to be closer to me than they ever were. Because spiritual relationship is closer than blood relationship. Because it lasts for all eternity. Now... You should still continue to pray for your your relatives, your, your unsaved ones, and take every opportunity you can to share Christ with them. They may not like it. They may not want to hear it anymore. They may not want your Jesus. But your ultimate loyalty is to your church. Did you hear that, folks? Your ultimate loyalty is to your church. And your Savior. We need help with each other. I spend five days a week discipling different young men in this church. Some of them aren't that young. (laughs) I need your help. I need you to say, hey, I'm a mature Christian, and I hope you can say that. Let me find somebody to disciple. It shouldn't just be my job. Find somebody to disciple. Listen, we're going to talk about a minute's discipleship. And I got challenged at that conference this week. I went to a, a thing called the Bonhoeffer Project. How many of you, did you go to that? Who else went? Anybody else go? Okay. Dietrich Bonhoeffer described discipleship as this. Christianity without discipleship is Christianity without Christ. In other words, what Jesus said, if you love something more than me, you're not worthy of me. And meaning, you can't have me that way. He turns to his disciples and he brings them into a whole new level of discipleship. One that they maybe didn't think. And one, I heard a guy named Bill Hall speak in, in this Bonhoeffer project. And he drew a box. And he put a line down the middle of it and he said, 95% of American Christians thinks that this is, he wrote the word salvation in it. And he said, here it is. You hear the gospel, you get saved, you get baptized, and you're done. And over here, we're trying to get every day Christians to buy in to discipleship. And they say, wait a minute, I got my ticket to heaven I'm not going to buy into that. And they don't realize 
that if they don't buy in to discipleship, meaning being a disciple of Jesus and discipling others, they're probably not really Christians. Because God doesn't have it two ways. Listen to what Jesus said. He turns to the disciples. He says, he who does not take up his cross is not worthy of me. What does he mean? If you were following people around 2,000 years ago, walking down Palestine with a cross on their back, where were they going? Huh? To die. Now Jesus is asking you to take a cross. Now, wait a minute. That can't be discipleship. Well, I'm sorry, but it is. It is the ultimate cost of discipleship, following Jesus right to the place he went. To the cross. Maybe he didn't really mean it that way. But he expands our understanding. Verse 39, he says, he who finds his life. You think you settle down in Americana, you know, the, 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 the dream? You lost your life. You think you settle down into a Christianity where you get to be a weekend warrior? You lost your life. He who finds his life will lose it. And he means, my friends, eternally. You know, when I see somebody really understanding what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a disciple, and I see them resist, I don't take offense at that. I don't disunderstand that. I know why they resist. If they really understand it, they're talking about giving up their life for Christ forever. They're talking about taking a citizenship in heaven that that is their only home and the only thing they're looking forward to. And they say, well, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. That's okay. God will make you miserable till you are. Or you'll be miserable in what you find in the world. Jesus is saying here, he who finds his life loses it. But the converse is also true. He who loses his life for my sake finds it. I think we live so glibly in an American Christianity today and the American dream and think that we're going to escape judgment. Admittedly, we're fooling ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves. Jesus does not call every one of his disciples to die for their faith. I realize that. He may not call you to do that. But he calls you to be ready to do it. Because if you're taking a cross, at least you're moving toward death to get real life. This doesn't get a lot of amens because it's it's challenging. It's ridiculous to think, by the way, that you can defeat the devil on your own or in the lives of others if you're not ready to die for Christ. Listen to the Revelation chapter 12, 9, 10, and 11. This is really interesting. It talks about the victory of Christ. And then it says this. So the great dragon was cast down, the serpent of old, called the devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has who accused them before God day and night <coughs> has been cast down. That happened at the cross, by the way. 
and they overcame him. They did? By the blood of the Lamb. What do you need when somebody's accusing you? You need to be justified. You need to, a defense. You need to be able to say, that's not true of me anymore. And they do that through the blood of the Lamb. Jesus shed his blood so Satan, nor anybody else, could accuse you of anything. Okay. This is by the word of their testimony. This indicates to me a boldness of confessing Jesus before men and your testimony of what you believe about him in this book. This book. Not your church doctrinal statement. This book. In Luke 10.18, well, I'll go there in a minute. And then Jesus said, and they did not love their own lives even unto death. All three of those things have to be there. There's no victory over the devil. The blood of the lamb. You've got power. But if you stop there, you are not going all the way. Word of your testimony. Be bold for Jesus. Take God's testimony about his son and spread it from the housetops. And they loved not their own lives, even to death. You know what? I look around this room, and I want to tell you assuredly, because God has challenged me this way, I would take a bullet for any one of you. Now, I might pull my gun out and shoot back at the person shooting at you (laughs) if I'm still alive. I would take a bullet for you. Because I don't love my life. My wife asks me sometimes, when are you going to retire? When do you want me to? So, I've been planning it for eight years. But every time I do, God says, you've got more to do. Keep doing it. It's hard to know that what's expected of you is your life. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We talk a lot about submission, but this is something else. Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. And we'll say, man, I'd die for my wife, but she can't even get you to take out the garbage. In fact, my wife gets aggravated at me. She says, she comes to me and says, hey, I need you to do something for me. And I'm watching TV, maybe a football game. Oh, okay. Hold on. Let me pause this. What do you need, hon? I want you to do that, thus and thus and so. Got it. I'll do it. And I go back. She goes, she stands over there, hands on her hips. <laughs> I said, oh, you mean now? <laughs> yes. Oh, I get it. That's giving your life up for your wife. Huh? No, going and doing what she asked you to do. Well, that too. That too. Thank you, Nikki. I, yeah. Matthew 16, 26. What profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange 
for his soul. Now let's talk a minute about the benefit of receiving Christ. Because Jesus said this. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who's at me. That's the Father. And he goes into this issue of, of receiving a cup of cold water and so forth. But the wonder of all this is that when somebody receives the message of Christ, meaning a message from us, they actually are receiving us. And when somebody receives us, they're receiving Christ. And when we're receiving Christ, they're receiving God, the Father. And the reward he describes is the same reward as those who preach in verse 41. Even to the point of giving just a cup of cold water to somebody because that person's a disciple. That's a simple thing to do, isn't it? We're studying James in our home teams. Oh, he's getting real practical on us, isn't he? But listen to this. Ephesians 1. You can turn there if you want to. 3 through 6. You don't have to. You can turn there if you want to. I love this section of Scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. By the way, that's His ultimate purpose for you. In love, he predestined us to adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Wow. Think about it. Accepted in the beloved. He, his blood satisfies all of our sin. We're accepted. His death removes our sin from us forever. We're accepted in the beloved. His burial hides our sin away from the Father's eyes forever. We're accepted. His presence with God assures our completion in heaven because we're accepted in the blood to the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen. Believer, every promise God has ever made pertaining to a person in Christ and your heavenly inheritance is absolutely sure He cannot lie. To you who have not received Christ, listen to me. I understand why. If you really understand what it means to follow Christ. But let me tell you about some benefits of it. You're received and accepted in Jesus forever. John 1.12 As many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. You say, this sounds too simple. Salvation is simple. Discipleship is difficult on you. But you can take assurance that Jesus Christ has promised that he began a good work in you, will finish it to the day of Christ. That's a confidence we can have. That's something we should grab a hold of. There's only one thing keeping you from receiving Christ today. It's love for your own sin. You put something above God. It's love for your own sin. And love 
for your own skin. Both of these are going to perish in the lake of fire without Christ. Will you walk as the disciple? Will you take the cross? Will you lose your life? That's what we were challenged down here at this conference this weekend. Losing our lives. I talked to some of these pastors and preachers after, in between some of the services. And they're just like you and me. They're just like you and me. They're not, I mean, I, I know it's awesome to listen to these guys. They're spirit-filled. They come up there. They edify us. They build us up. Or sometimes they challenge us. They step all over our toes. But they're just like you and me. And they, too, one of the things that, that James Merritt said is God is, don't go out and evangelize to make decisions, to get people to make decisions. God is not looking for decisions. He's looking for disciples. And that's what we're about. And that's what we're going to be about. And we need help. You may think, well, John, I, I don't know the Bible well enough to be a mentor or a disciple maker. Or I know the Bible so little, I need somebody to make a disciple out of me. And I hear people say, well, I don't like this you're doing, I don't like that you're doing. You know what? Help me! Help him! Help all of us here! Help us to make disciples. That's what the business of the church is. Last time I checked, the Great Commission. Go ye therefore into all the world and make thumb-sucking babies. No. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, or behold, I'm with you. When you do that, I'm with you. Always. Even right up until the end of the age. Hallelujah. Isn't it good to know he ain't going to leave us? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your love and your grace. Lord, I thank you that you've called us to a heavenly calling. And because of that, and when we take the cross, we realize suddenly or maybe maybe over a period of time, this world is not our home. And the people that need you are more important than our own lives. Well, there's a lot of people suffering here today, Father, and I, I empathize. I hurt with them. I talk to them. I share with them. Sometimes they share Christ with me in a deeper way than I can really understand. And yet you're there. And I'm asking you to give me and these people here the same emotions and passion that you have for each other and for the souls around us. I'm asking you to do that. What I'm asking you to do is to fill us with your spirit because your spirit doesn't truck with other stuff. He gets involved, Father. He pushes us forward. Paul said he constrains us through your love. Let that be, let that be our theme here. Thank you for everyone that come. I pray that you would 
bless our fellowship time afterwards. I pray that people would understand where we are coming from with your word and not misunderstand it and misread it. We're more interested in your word, Father, than anything else and in obeying you. Thank you for your love, your grace, your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.